You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Pretty often on what I believe is a winning strategy. And it's not just a winning strategy, it's really a very biblical strategy regarding all of the you know, challenges that we're kind of facing in our culture. And it, it seems like they're just ever-growing challenges that we're facing. It's a, it's a winning strategy Jesus used. It's a winning strategy the early church effectively used. And it is a strategy that the apostle Paul used. And I want to look at that strategy in detail today. I recently ran across this statement that if I could just summarize what I want to tell you, what I want to get across to you this morning, it would be this. Conversion to Christ changes the individual. Mass conversions to Christ change the culture. Conversion to Christ, when one person comes to Christ, it changes, transforms an individual. When you have mass conversions where many, many, many people are coming to Christ, it will change a culture. The body of Christ is positioned and we have been given the command, the mandate to transform individuals as well as cultures. So this morning, I wanna look at the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 19 specifically. If you've got your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there. We're gonna spend a lot of time there this morning. And chapter 19, to me, is a template for what I believe is a winning strategy for where the church finds itself today in the culture war. Because if you know anything about church history, the church has always found itself in a cultural war. Okay, we're, there's nothing unique about us. There's nothing unique about where we are in, in, in the terms of the cultural war. The church has always been placed, positioned, commissioned, called, mandated to respond to the cultural war, the cultural challenges it faces. So let's look at Acts 19. Acts 19 is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, which takes him into the region of Ephesus. Now, to really understand and to really appreciate the work that was ahead of Paul, you need to understand and appreciate the culture of what Ephesus was like at the time Paul goes there. Now, the city of Ephesus was strategically located near a sea harbor, making it a very significant center of trade. By that, I mean ships kind of came and went from the ports of Ephesus all the time, bringing in goods and people from all over the world. Also, not just the sea, but you had many major roads that connected the city of Ephesus to all of these other very significant, powerful, influential cities in Asia Minor. 
And because of its roads and its sea harbors, people again were able to come to Ephesus from not just Asia Minor, but from all over the world, making it a very, very significant, powerful, and influential city. Now, among the high points of the city of Ephesus, uh, it was known for its amphitheater. And it was the largest in the world at that time, and it was designed to hold up to 50,000 spectators. Now, at one point in Acts 19, two of Paul's companions are drug into this very amphitheater filled with an angry mob, and you'll hear me reference that a little later. Ephesus was also known for its occultic practices. Okay, black magic, uh, seances, sorcery, and many, many other occultic practices. They would make and they would sell potions which promised happiness and financial wealth, success, marriage, children, just to name a few. You kind of said, this is what I need. They had a potion that met that need. Fortune tellers and those who could cast spells uh, were everywhere in Ephesus. The writing and selling of books regarding sorcery, it brought great financial resources to Ephesus as well as kind of teach and draw more and more people into the occult. In Acts 19 verses 13 through 16, that's where you're gonna be introduced to the seven sons of Sceva, okay? This was a group of Jewish priests who were a part of and and they were practicing in uh, the occultic uh, stuff there in, in Ephesus. So occultic practices were a very huge part of the demonic activity that was happening there in the city of Ephesus. Last but by no means, Ephesus was also the location of the great temple of Artemis, which was so magnificent in its time that it actually became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Much of the commerce and religious activities all revolved around the temple of Artemis. Many, many Craftsmen were employed making and selling statues and and shrines, pictures, and all kinds of items that all revolved around the worshiping of this goddess, Artemis. People would buy all of these uh, images for their home, for their businesses, and they would just be placed throughout the city so that no matter where you went in the city of Ephesus, you would find statues and shrines all dedicated to the worshiping of Artemis. And again, people from all over Asia Minor and all over the world, they would travel to and from Ephesus. They would be visiting, they would be celebrating, worshiping in the temple of Artemis. They would buy all of these statues uh, and images uh, of the goddess Artemis. So again, this was prolific in the city of Ephesus. There were huge parades and processions, all of that were being done to honor and to promote the allegiance and the worship to the goddess Artemis. Uh, There would be music and dancing and singing and and dramatic presentations. There would be the chanting of allegiances. And you'll, you'll kind of see that here in the book of Acts in just a moment. The business and selling 
of all these images of Artemis, you gotta understand, this was so lucrative. And it brought such great wealth to the city and people of Ephesus that the temple of Artemis actually became the world's largest bank at that time. That's how influential and powerful this was. And the entire financial foundation of Ephesus was built upon and it was maintained all by the money brought in by the temple of Artemis. That's how powerful and influential it was. And there were many, many people, eunuch priests, there were priestesses, there were what they called religious prostitutes who worked just to maintain the temple of Artemis and lead the daily religious activities of the temple. And many of the worship activities were were very, very erotic. They were very highly sexual in nature. So the temple of Artemis was the focal point of everything in Ephesus and everything revolved around the temple of Artemis and the worship of this goddess. Now in regards to the goddess Artemis, uh, she went by other names, the queen of heaven, a savior, mother goddess. Uh, She was the supposed goddess of fertility. She was the most worshiped deity in Asia and perhaps around the world during Paul's time. The goddess Artemis, she was, if you were to ever see a statue or a shrine of her, uh, she was portrayed as a multi-breasted one. As a matter of fact, the statues would just show her covered with breasts. This was, again, all in an appeal to her as the goddess of fertility. Not only did she promise fertility, but she also promised long life, sexual fulfillment, a successful marriage, protection during pregnancy and childbirth, multiple children, just to name a few of the ways that she was uh, understood as the goddess of fertility. Now again, I mention all of this because I wanna give you a brief snapshot of the city of Ephesus when Paul came there. This was not Mayberry, okay? This was not Little House on the Prairie. This was not Mom, Baseball, and Apple Pie. The city of Ephesus in Paul's day was much more like a nightmare on Elm Street. It was a city filled with pagans doing what pagans do. Acts 19.1 says that when Paul arrived in the city of Ephesus, he found several believers. He found several believers. Not several hundred, not several thousand, several believers. Paul didn't find hundreds of thousands. He encountered seven, like I'm thinking maybe a dozen or so. And I say that because when Paul talked to them about the Holy Spirit and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit, look what Acts 19.7 says. There were about 12 men in all. This is the city. When, when Paul goes into Ephesus, this is what he finds. A city filled with paganism, with idol worship, and several believers who didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. This wasn't a city booming with Christians. 
Historians estimate around 250,000 people lived in Ephesus at this time. So you're talking about a handful of Christians in a population of 250,000 people. Talk about overwhelming and intimidating. Think about just the ratio of Christians to unbelievers in Ephesus at that time. Now we know Paul had been to Ephesus at least once before where he established some churches and apparently these churches were having a hard time flourishing and growing. And I'm sure it was very difficult given the challenging environment to stay faithful once she made a commitment to Christ. And we know that Paul shared with them about the Holy Spirit, laid hands on them, and prayed with them to receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure part of Paul's return to Ephesus, again, was to strengthen those believers uh, as well as add new believers and establish new churches through the preaching of the word of God. Now, let me ask you this question. Given everything I've set up to this point, how much different do you think Ephesus was then to how America is today? How much difference is there between the city of Ephesus then and the city of Mason City today? I would guess the ratio of Christians, born again, spirit-filled believers versus unbelievers just right here in, in this city of Mason City would be much greater, much higher than it was in Ephesus the day Paul goes there on his third trip. So let's just ask, how many here this morning would consider yourself a born-again, spirit-filled believer? I would guess if you were to raise your hand, we would have more than 12. So we've got at least that much going for us, right? I clearly established the people in Ephesus, they worship false gods. People all over the United States worship false gods. Gods we've made into our own image. The church of Satan in America is alive and well. Public schools around the nation, they're hosting Satan clubs. The city of Ephesus, they sacrificed children to pagan gods. America sacrifices children through abortion child sex trafficking, organ harvesting. As a matter of fact, I've seen where the child sex trafficking is the strongest, it's the greatest right here in the United States. People in Ephesus, they were in the occult, they practiced witchcraft, sorcery, they dabbled in potions. I've seen articles where more and more Americans are practicing witchcraft. We have bookstores where you can go into and find sections that are all given uh, to the occult. They're full of books on sorcery, spells, incantations. I mean, we have drug dealers all over America who dispense potions like crack, heroin, LSD, and fentanyl, just to name a few. The city of Ephesus was filled with sexually erotic activities, temple prostitutes, parades promoting all kinds of sexual deviancies. Pretty much the same thing here in America, not to mention right here in River City yesterday. You'll see in the city of Ephesus, 
They had their chance. Great is the temple of Artemis. Great is the temple of Artemis. And I'll show you in a couple of minutes, they did that for two hours. We have our allegiances here. We're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. They're chanting that. How are we any different than the city of Ephesus? That's my point, we're not. The situation Paul faced as he entered the city of Ephesus is not much different than the situation we face right here in America or here in Mason City. So what did Paul do? What was Paul's approach as he goes into the city of Ephesus, the city filled with ungodliness and only a few, a handful, a dozen of believers who had just been filled with the Holy Spirit? Because what Paul did there not only changed individuals, it changed a culture. He didn't just transform a few people, he transformed a culture. And if we're interested in changing our culture here, we need to not only know what Paul did, but we gotta do what Paul did. What did Paul do? Acts chapter 19, verse eight. Then Paul went into the synagogue. This is right after he gets into the city of Ephesus. Paul went into the synagogue and he preached boldly for the next three minutes. Next three months. That's a big commitment. But you're gonna see Paul makes an even bigger commitment here in a moment goes into the city and what he commits to do is I'm gonna boldly preach the word of God for the next three months and he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. What did Paul talk about? The kingdom of God. What else did Paul talk about? The kingdom of God. What else did Paul talk about? The kingdom of God. It all went back to the kingdom of God and he did this boldly, persuasively for the next three months. Verse nine continues, but some became stubborn, rejecting Paul's message and publicly speaking against the way. Now that term the way there, that simply referred to those who followed the way of Christ, what we would call today Christians. Jesus said in John 14, six, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And so the way referred to there were those who believed Jesus was the way to the Father, the way to salvation. The other thing I want you to see here is that even though the Apostle Paul, who was probably the greatest evangelist that existed ever, other than Jesus, had people who were stubborn, who could sit under his teaching, his bold teaching, his, his arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God in ways none of us could probably ever measure up to. And yet, in that crowd, there were people who became stubborn of heart, hardness of heart, and they rejected Paul's message. I want you to see that and understand, if that happened to the apostle Paul, given who he is, Guess what? That's gonna happen to you too. Even Jesus and his message he came to give were rejected by many. 
If it happened to them, you can bet, you can count on, you better factor in. If you're gonna go out and begin to preach and teach on the kingdom of God, if you're gonna boldly preach the word of God, there are going to be people who are going to reject and come against you. Count on it. Continuing with verse nine. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then Paul held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now again, the lecture hall of Tyrannus was part of a much larger school. It was kind of like a college. It would be maybe akin to like Nyack here uh, in Mason City. And this school, like many colleges, uh, contained many lecture halls. And one of those lecture halls that Paul used in this big school was the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And they were used in the morning hours predominantly for a variety of, of lecture topics. But most of them were vacated uh, from like 11 until four in the afternoon because that was the hottest part of the day. Uh, and so they would take a break and Paul used those five hours from 11 to four and he met with people there in the lecture hall of Tyrannus and, and he just preached and he taught and he discipled the people um, in the word of God. Now, again, uh, uh, Paul says that this went on uh, for two years. It says for the next two years, this is what Paul did. Three months he kind of spent in the synagogue uh, preaching boldly the word of God, you know, persuasively uh, arguing to them uh, about the kingdom of God. He did that for three months, and then now you've got here, this is two years uh, that, that Paul uh, is lecturing, teaching, discipling there in the uh, hall of Tyrannus. So Paul has invested two years and three months, if my math is correct, and a lot of you know I'm mathematically challenged. Paul's boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is teaching and preaching the word of God. Now, what are the results of this? Here, we know what Paul's focus, we know his topics. Again, I don't have time to go into it, but the story regarding the seven sons of Sceva was part of it as well as Paul's ability to perform miracles. And as you read that, you'll, you'll see that talked about there. Verse 17, the story of what happened, and again, this is the seven sons of Sceva, spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices, much alive and well in the city of Ephesus. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and it had a powerful effect. Now again, ask yourself this question. What was it? What did Paul do to bring about these kind of results? And we know from scripture for over two years, Paul continually, relentlessly, faithfully preached and taught concerning the kingdom of God and he boldly preached the word of God. And the results of that was people got saved. 
And in the process of their salvation and their ongoing discipleship, they respond to the work of God in their lives by repenting of their practices and lifestyles and they burned their incantation books. Not only that, but look at what else was happening due to Paul's ongoing evangelism. Continue with verse 23. About that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way, concerning this group of ever-growing Christians. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith who had a very large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. Again, I alluded to that at the very beginning. I talked about how, how so much in Ephesus revolved around this very thing. And he called them together. They had kind of a union meeting. And Others employed in similar trades and he speaks to them and this is what he says. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. Our wealth comes from the making, the selling of these shrines, these, uh, these statues, all of these things that we sell and create for the goddess Artemis. You know that all of our well-being, our financial stability comes from this practice. But as you have seen and heard, this man, Paul, has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's not only done this here in Ephesus, but he's done this throughout the province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshiped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world will be robbed of her great prestige and their anger boiled. They got mad as Demetrius is kind of telling them, here's what's happening, here's, here's the effect, here's the result of what it's doing. And it says they, their anger boiled boiled and they began shouting great is Artemis of the Ephesians soon the whole city was filled with confusion our city is filled with confusion right now cities all across America are filled with confusion right now because people don't know what to believe and everyone rushed into the amphitheater remember that big amphitheater seats 50,000 spectators and they took in Paul's uh, companions, and they were traveling with him from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him, begging him not to risk his life by any, entering the amphitheater. That's how dangerous it had gotten for Paul. Inside, the people were all shouting some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. Isn't that true? You ever see a big crowd gather together and, and they, they, they seem very unified in what they're doing, but as you begin talking to people on an individual basis, they have no idea why they're there. You know why that is? 10% lead, the other 90% follow. 10% set the agenda. The other 90%, they just kind of show up and try to figure out what's going on and just try to go along with it as best they can. 
And that's what's happening here. You've got, you've got a small percentage of the people who are driving the agenda who know what they're doing there. The rest just show up. I mean, they're trying to figure it out. They see a mass crowd. They want to be a part of it. Same's true here. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He tried, he motioned for silence, tried to speak. When the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and kept it up for two hours. Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. They're chanting their allegiance. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I could do that two minutes. It shows you how committed these people were to the temple of Artemis. It shows how committed they were. At last, the mayor was able to quiet him down enough to speak citizens of Ephesus. He said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, isn't that interesting? Since this is an undeniable fact, do you hear that, that, that term, that phrase used often? It is an undisputable fact. Climate change, it is an undisputable fact. It's not. There's a lot of debate and a lot of differences of opinions on that. Vaccines are safe and effective. It's an undisputable fact. Well, it's not. Some vaccines are safe and effective. Others are questionable. But yet, if you try to raise that discussion in the public square, you're shouted down. Oh, you're a, you're a conspiracy theorist. So what they like to often do is just present everything, their side of the argument, as an undisputed fact and if you question it or try to offer a different narrative you're a nut you're a kook they did it there they do it here nothing new since this is an undeniable fact you should stay calm and not do anything rash you have brought these men here now again i want you to i want you to underline this in your bible they have stolen nothing from the temple and they have not spoken against our goddess. I'm gonna to come to that in just a moment, but I want, you to, I want you to pay particularly close attention to that because it tells me where their focus was and it tells me where their focus was not. If Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session, the officials can hear the case at once. Let them make formal charges. If there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a large assembly. I'm afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government, and since there is no cause for all of this commotion, and if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. He dismissed them, and they dispersed. They went home. So what was Paul's winning strategy? That's kind of in my the heart of my question this morning. What was Paul's approach? What would have caused people in mass to stop wanting, worshiping, buying statues and shrines to the goddess Artemis? What was it that caused the masses to abandon their pursuit of false gods and to begin to pursue and to follow the one true God Jehovah and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, keep in mind, the results and the response of the people is so great. 
It, it is so impacting. It is so huge that it causes those who benefited financially from it to stand up and take notice. That's results. And I want to know, what was it? Now, here's the thing. It wasn't Paul and his companions going after and speaking publicly against the goddess Artemis. The, the man there, as he's addressing the crowd, makes that very clear. They have done nothing to come against the goddess of Artemis. They don't even publicly talk about her. They're not putting her down. They're not even mentioning her in any way, shape, or form. The scripture tells us they never spoke a word against the goddess Artemis. So what was it that caused the masses to turn to Christ and the culture to shift? The preaching of God's word. That's it. And yet, it was all that was necessary. It was all that was needed. Back to what I said earlier, conversion to Christ. An individual conversion to Christ changes the individual. Mass conversions, where lots of people begin to come to Christ, changes a culture. Now, I'm not against speaking up about the, the social, political, cultural ills of our time. There is a place and a time for that. But it cannot, it must not take precedence over the bold, faithful, consistent teaching and preaching of God's word. We have got to be talking more about the kingdom of God than we're talking about the kingdom of darkness. It is the church's mission, solely the church's mission. It is solely our mandate to win the loss to Christ. And when we do that first and foremost, the Holy Spirit will bring them around to our side of the issues, to our way of biblically thinking and approaching. I can go out there and I can preach and I can protest against the wrongs of abortion. And sure, I might be able to persuade a few and I think I have actually been persuaded through that. I'm not gonna deny that. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna speak against that. Let me ask you this, if you win them from the pro-choice side to the pro-life side, and, but they're not a Christian, they're pro-life, but they're gonna spend eternity in hell. What have you accomplished? What are you doing? But if you win them to Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to work as the Holy Spirit does in the hearts and minds of every believer, the Holy Spirit will begin to transform their thinking, their practices, their language, the way they spend their money. Not only will they be on the right side of the abortion issues, but chances are good they'll eventually be on the right side of a whole lot of other issues simply because they now follow Jesus. Paul got them to stop worshiping the goddess Artemis. Not by bashing and out there criticizing and telling everybody, oh, you're gonna go to hell, but by preaching Jesus to them. 
as I look at this and I look at other mission journeys that Paul did, as I look at the approach of Christ, this was the winning strategy. And that needs to be ours as well. So the challenge for us as a congregation, as well as every other church in Mason City, in North Iowa, and out throughout the United States is this. How can we be better prepared, positioned, and what can we be actively doing to engage our culture with the good news of Jesus Christ? Deb read this earlier, Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's our, that's our commission. We gotta get people through the preaching of the word of God to come to a place where they call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. What is the name of the Lord? Jesus. We just gotta get them to call on the name of Jesus. But here's the challenge we face in getting people to call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 14, but how can they call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in him? He said, they're not gonna call on the name of Jesus if they don't believe in him. And how can they hear about Jesus unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful, how lovely are the feet of those who bring good news. God is calling us to take our beautiful, lovely feet and let's get out there in the streets and let's not argue with people about abortion Let's not argue with people about transgenderism or how many genders did God create. Let's not argue about climate. Let's just get out there and tell people about Jesus. That's what lovely, beautiful feet are called to do. And I think if we really truly wanna win the culture war, and I guess all of us in this room do, we don't do it by going directly against the cultural war. We do it by taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the culture, just like Paul did in there in the city of Ephesus. Trusting that when people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they'll repent, they'll turn from their sinful practices, their lifestyles, they'll burn their books, and not only that, they'll eventually come around to a pro-life, pro-marriage, pro-family, biblically sexuality perspective. But it, it comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what changes. That's what transforms the culture. It's not winning every single debate and argument with people. Because you can win all those arguments, and if they still don't know Jesus, they're going to hell. Last month, me and, I'm gonna get ready to close here. Last month, uh, me and five other pastors uh, got together and we decided that we're gonna meet together monthly for the purpose of looking at ways that we can begin to work together to support each other in our efforts to more fully and effectively bring the gospel message to our community. We agreed that if 27,000 people, that's currently the population here in Mason City, we agreed that if 27,000 people were to come to the church, we don't have enough churches in town to accommodate them all. So we all acknowledge that and we'd agree, let's stop fighting over the people who are in the pews already saved, let's figure out a way, a strategy 
of how to go out there with our lovely, beautiful feet into the fields that the Bible says are ripe for harvest, and let's commit together to bringing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. Now, again, we have just started meeting. Our hope is to invite more pastors uh, that represent more churches into the group, so we're really uh, probably a long ways from any formal plans, but it's a start. And just be praying that God would give us a unified vision to how to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a very lost, to a very confused community. Again, we're meeting tomorrow night if you wanna be in prayer about that. Secondly, and I'll close with this. uh, Following the service, I'm gonna be meeting with the visioning team and with our elders. And I want us to really kind of begin to start thinking seriously about this as well. And again, it may take some time to flush out a plan and a vision, but be praying for us as well. And I'm gonna pick it up here uh, next week. Let's pray. Father God, again, we just thank you that you do give us a vision. You give us strategies, Lord. And these strategies that you have given to us, they're strategies that have been used for generations. And Father, again, we thank you just for the insight that we are able to glean just from Acts chapter 19 as Paul goes into the city of Ephesus. And Lord, he just begins uh, to walk faithfully in that strategy of just again, being persuasive about the kingdom of God and boldly proclaiming your word. And Lord, we pray for a vision for our church. We pray for a a vision for our community of churches, Lord, that we would know how to effectively bring that very same message about the kingdom of God, that very same message about the word of God, like Paul did there in Ephesus, Lord, that we can find a way to do that here in Mason City. And that, Lord, through that, we're not just gonna be changing individuals, but we're gonna change a culture. And Father, I believe that's what you've not just called this church, but every church, not just in Mason City, but, but all throughout America and all around the world, you have called the church to transform and to change cultures. And it all begins here with us. It begins in every individual church here in Mason City. It seems the enemy is very well organized. Father, oftentimes we're left in confusion. Father, this morning I, I pray that you would begin through your great mercies the Lord, you would just begin to turn the tables on that. That as we follow your vision, Lord, that we can begin to transform this culture. That we can begin to bring people who are lost to a place of being found, people who are are blind to a place of being able to see the truth. And so, Father, I pray that you'll be with pastors, you'll be with churches, you'll be with our visioning team, our elders, Lord, as we just, again, are very open, Lord. We just come out of great humility. And we trust and believe that you have a plan. You know how to do this. We just need to hear it and be obedient. So, Lord, I pray just for a humility 
Pray for a passion, a compassion for people in our community. There are many out there who are waiting to hear the truth. And yet, Lord, they don't hear it because we haven't, we haven't taken it to them. We haven't, we haven't presented it to them. And so, Lord, we just pray for beautiful, lovely feet here that you can take us into the community, into our culture, Lord, and to carry with us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I believe that this is what Jesus came to establish. And we thank you, Lord, that your word says that when we walk faithfully in that, that not even the gates of hell will be able to stop us, to overcome us. And so, Lord, we just wanna partner with you as you call us to live out the great commission to go and make disciples. So Father, we just thank you. We look to you. We trust you. In Jesus' Thanks name for listening. We pray. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.